For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Good morning. Welcome to Elbow's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Saturday, August 26, 2017. So I've got a couple things that I need to, um, well, I'm going to talk about, but I also want to talk about some of my own personal stuff. Um, been having problems at the workplace due to racial discrimination, um, biases, favoritism. And so I decided to speak about it because it was time. And this blatant disregard never changes. It's almost like um, it's really scary because I think most of these people don't even realize that they that they exhibit um, forms of racism, but they think that they're neutral parties. But it's in the behavior and the way they do things that show that's a pattern, basically, to show um, this type of behavior. So anyway, I'm speaking out about it because it's not acceptable. And I'm speaking out about it long, you know, and all these things that are starting to transpire in attitude, behavior, ideology. And most of those people would think in their minds that they weren't, um, but it comes out in different subtle ways. So I'm working against that. We just transferred over to a new um, software system. And the one thing that became very Throughout this, and my supervisor and myself, we tried when they said they were going to start doing a new system, was that there's specific things that we do within the accounts payable that need to be addressed with the people who are um, designing the software for this new program, a, so a software system that we're changing over to. And instead of being listened to, we had the attitude of an arrogant, dismissive individual who, who also appears to think that women somehow don't know what they're talking about, yet they're doing it the job. And so throughout that six eight months or so that from when we were told that we were transferring over to this new system to when they went live on Monday, um, we tried to say there are things that need to be discussed prior to going live so that they could work through the glitches or the the means by which we could do what we need to do. And instead of being listened to, this controller chose to basically negate anything we had to say because he, he thought he knew what he was talking about. And on the 21st, when we went live, the people who were part of the programming, to include the people who were going to um, transfer the data, did not know what they were doing. And so what we get is a live system that most everything that I need to do from within my side, as because I work both the inventory and purchasing production side in terms of the uh, vendors that we utilize in, in, in finishing goods or the raw material to finish goods, so that's the product side, um, pretty much was not done. And so when I'm trying to do any training, it can't be done really because they have to keep stopping to think about how the process can work based on what the system was programmed to do. And the vast majority of it could have been eliminated if 
communication to the programmers had been provided so that you could do what you needed to do. And that didn't happen. And so the uh, we had a finance side and we had the, you know, the warehouse, EDP, all that stuff. Um, so they had three trainers there basically on Monday. And from day one, it was, I'll be back in five. Uh, oh, give me, just give me five minutes. Just give me ten minutes. And so every time we picked up a, a, an invoice, because there's different, you know, terms, there's different uh, cash app deliveries, et cetera. So these are all different types of terms that had they been told, had they come and talked to us, they would have known all the things that were necessary in order to make it work. But because of the arrogance of a man who believed that he knew what he was doing, he chose to dismiss the the important information so that when the conversion came, none of it was implemented, which means you can't do your job. And instead of admitting that, he would rather choose to say, you know, it's your problem or your fault. And this is the same person who, after a Caucasian female in the office, was under stress because she can't handle the two jobs that she chose to take on. She snapped at me while I was trying to help her do something. And then she snapped again a few days later. And instead of dealing with that particular situation, Human Resources and this controller chose to bring me in and try to make it look like it was a dual, it was both person's fault. And what was really interesting was this happened prior to the hills of Charlottesville and what the commander-in-chief chose to do, which was to blame both sides. There were no both sides in the situation. But Human Resources and this controller initially attempted to place the blame on both of us. This person snapped HR, called the witnesses, which was everyone in finance, because she just lost it. Told them what transpired, and yet they still had the meeting to try to make it look like it was both sides' fault. That's unacceptable. So I started sending emails going, you know, you guys seem to think that it is okay to drag me into a situation where what really needs to happen, especially because that person admitted to it. So we had our first meeting, and it came out that, you know, the controller was doing exactly that. He attempted to utilize it as a weapon against a good employee who didn't do anything by trying to blame the two sides. But what happened was, before he could finish what he had to say, the the perpetrating party stood up and said it was her fault that she was under stress, she was frustrated, and she took it out on me. So that shut down human resources and the controller. Yet we had another meeting, and he attempted to do it the same way. This man should be fired from his job. Because not only that, we have temps coming in. Why are the temps there when you have an AR, but she's also a person of color, clerk, who could be helping out with this big issue because one of the biggest problems 
in our in the finance side of the transfer was the accounts receivable. And part of that was because the person, a Caucasian female, who's the supervisor, didn't do her job. She left all these records open. They tried to clean them up for her because she didn't clean them up. Or she didn't take the time to look to see if they were cleaned up. She spends more time wandering around the company, trying to learn everything else so she's a miss-know-it-all, and she never does her job. He protect, the controller protects this Caucasian woman. In the same way that this Caucasian woman went off on me, admitted that she went off on me, and did apologize to me, and he's still trying to protect that person while dragging me, the minority person, into all of it, making the assumption that somehow the person of color must be guilty. Therefore, he's going to protect these people who really aren't able to handle their jobs. That's the real issue. And all this retaliation comes out because I stepped up and said, you will not treat me in this manner. So needless to say, we, the, the, the training person comes in on Monday, and like I said, every time I picked up an invoice because I pulled all the most difficult ones to figure out how we're going to be able to utilize this new system in the finance side in order to get the proper information, and it filters to the right general codes, GL codes. Make sure it goes to ties, make sure it goes to shirts, make sure it goes to trousers, make sure it goes to the raw material to, to make the finished good products. Well, these GL codes all look the same. One of the staff accountants showed me. He goes, how am I going to determine whether this is ties, whether this is shirts, whether this is, these are um, uh, uh, finished, uh, you know, uh, finished um, um, uh, jackets, soft coats? men's outerwear, because it all says the same thing. So he's pulling up a report, and they all say the same thing. All it is is, well, when you create the purchase order, you know, it should filter to the right codes. Okay. Even the trainer from the finance side had to create he had to ask to create new codes because he realized they weren't there to identify the right area so that it would link to the right location. So needless to say, my whole week, instead of being trained on a system that maybe there's a few things that go wrong and they could help you work through it, was every single one of the invoicing that I pulled aside to make sure that we got per, uh, information from, was not it couldn't be done or they had to tweak things. The man spent more time on the phone to the, the Montreal or Canada where the software system comes from and the programmers, and they were working back and forth to change programming. Why did things come over? What happened? And in every case, when I talked to people from, from the training side, and it, was just, it wasn't said right out loud, but I, I had mentioned the fact that if you guys were provided with more sufficient information, would a lot of this stuff have been avoided? which means if you had you know, worked or gotten the proper information prior to the conversion while the programmers were programming what was needed by us, would this have been eliminated? And they said in most of the cases, yes. So you have the arrogance and hubris of these people at the high levels 
and the people who trust the people at those levels to provide these people with the proper pieces of information. My own supervisor looked at it and said, I'm out of here. And she was going to retire anyway. She just she says, I'm not going to be a part of this. Because she and I both saw that 90% of the stuff that we asked for was not even implemented because it was never discussed with the programming side of the software system that we transferred over to. And that hubris and arrogance and dismissive nature ends up causing these type of problems by people who look at a woman or look at a minority or look at whatever and say, well, they don't know anything. I'll trust these people who we know don't do their jobs, have caused all these type of messes because of the fact that they don't do their jobs, but you'll protect those people over the people who show up to work and do their job. You treat them with, oh, well, you're only worth this much, and you need to stay in your place. And he continues to utilize that attitude. I'm one of the few people who took the time with this person to make sure that we work through these things so that we could use the system the way it, it has the capacity to be used. And all, all of that, what, do we, what does the controller do? Oh, he's going to bring in another temp, or he's going to do this, so that he can help the two people who don't do their jobs get these temps to do things or try to take away work from me, who he knows can do the job. The same as the, the, the other person of color in the accounts receivable position, who he will, and this is even worse, she's sitting at her desk, she wasn't given any training on the new system. He's bringing in temps to do this account, to help the super, accounts receivable supervisor. And he's making all these plans in front of a person who is a dedicated employee to that company. He doesn't even acknowledge her as if she's there. That is how blatantly racist this controller is. Pure and concentrated disregard. And then they talk about finance or they talk about, you know, cash flow or whatever. Yet, you know how much you pay to bring in temps? Then we have this guy who's retired from the company, who knows the company, who knows the product, who understands the whole process. He retired from the company. They have called him back not once but twice. And then when they feel like they don't need him, they kick him out the doors. Oh, here's your 30-day notice. You're out of here. Then they call him back. Then when he feels comfortable, then they kick him out of there. And what are they going to do? Oh, they're going to bring in another temp. Well, if you don't have, didn't you tell the person that you were just letting go, this retiree who's come back to help the company, not once, but twice, then you give him notice, and then you're going to bring in a temp. And you're going to claim because what, it costs too much? It's almost like they're sabotaging the company so that it'll fail by their complete incompetence and protecting the people who are not competent while attempting to destroy the reputations of people who are competent, especially if those people are people of color.
So that's what I'm dealing with, and I'm not backing down. I show up every day. I take the time to learn, and this person still wants to treat you with disregard. It's, it's pure and concentrated retaliation. It's racial discrimination, and, it, and a lot of it has to do with being a female because my supervisor was Caucasian, and he still treated her like she was an idiot. The one difference is he did not get up and scream at her at her desk, and probably because she would have punched him in his face if he ever did something like that. So that's the world I work in, and it's becoming more more um, in your face now, especially with Trump in office and his cronies. They believe they have a free-for-all to treat people of color with total disregard. But they'll claim that they're not racist, but it's always there. It's a superiority that they believe they have over somebody else. It's someone who feels powerless because of whatever situations and then thinks that it's okay to take it out on the lowest common denominator in their belief system. And they don't like the fact that when you are the, when they consider you that and that person fights back because they're doing what's right and they're doing their job, that even pisses them off more. So they try to find other ways to sabotage you within the workplace. So that's what I've been dealing with. Oh, and then I have a car. Um, it just $2,000. My uncle passed away, and uh, I ended up getting uh, a vehicle of his. That's an, it's an ex, it was a, it's the exterior and interior excellent condition, but it needed a major tune-up and everything. And ever since I picked it up from the tune-up, every Friday, and this is what I, I began, you know, you start looking at the pattern, just like you're targeting. You look at the pattern. What are the patterns of what the people are doing? You're studying them. They think they're studying you, but you, you're, you're really studying what they're doing to you so that you can expose it so it helps the next victim understand better what's transpiring so they don't, they don't break down the way they, well, everyone can be broken, but at least it gives them a little bit more weapons, psychological weapons to use against such a vicious blitzing and attack of every aspect of their human living lives. So anyway, um, they did a tune-up, and I don't believe it's the um, owner or anything. I think that there's something going on because the car never did it. The check, so the check engine light keeps coming on. But what the pattern is is that it goes on every single Friday since I picked up the car after a major tune-up. Well, actually, it was over 2000 It was about $2,700 worth of parts and labor. So now they're saying, well, it might be, uh, it's an evaporation leak. And I'm like, well, how could there be that when it never happened before? Well, maybe the part wore out. How does it just wear out after I spent $2,000 fixing the car? Maybe something happened while it was being fixed. And that's what the owner is beginning to think. Why does it go on every Friday? Only every Friday. You can see the gas tank is only used, it's uh, all but a quarter used. Well, there's an evaporation leak. Well, well, what does that mean? That means that there's fumes and stuff that are coming around the car. Good thing I'm not smoking in this vehicle. So what sabotage was done in order to create one more thing that has to be done? 
you know, that whole concept of when you're targeted, constantly making you spend money because they want to keep you at a certain level or below it. So, you know, even the owner, he checked under the car and everything. He's like, I don't see it. So then these other two you know, workers and stuff, they're like, well, you know, I think there's a hissing sound, so it sounds like there's the, it's evaporating somewhere. Well, how did that happen? It doesn't come from zero to, oh, all of a sudden this is going to go wrong? And there is one thing, though. When I dropped the car off to be fixed, there was an MDX that was a year maybe younger or older, year or two older or younger. And that car was in really bad condition. This car wasn't. It just needed it needed a major tune-up. That's it. Everything should be okay. So I'll keep you updated on what else happens to that vehicle. But it's like time. Every Friday, the light goes on. So they're going to do some smoke thing to see when they, they smoke the cars, so they put some smoke in the vehicle, and then it, it, the smoke will leak out of whatever areas, and then they can see where, what, what's going on. So that's another thing I'm dealing with. But when you're targeted, they always try to, to – it's just like a big extortion ring. You know, they try to bleed you dry financially. It's one of the major tenets because that whole concept of, uh, of the person would rather choose career over cause that came out in the, um, what was it, the team themis, Palantir, Barico, and H.B. Gary. Remember those three uh, cybersecurity and info op security firms? Team themis is what they called themselves. And that's when they were doing hit jobs, hired by at the highest levels to destroy the reputations and lives of people. They have operational guidebooks on how to target someone to destroy them, to gather information because they have the vast apparatus because most of those companies like Palantir are like Fortune 500 and they work with the Department of Defense, the Defense Intelligence Agency, National Security. And they help to facilitate this you know, global uh, open-air prison as Mumia Abul-Jabal States. We have become an open air prison. Stalin capitalism. Where you can go to the movies, you can buy your iPhones, you can do all of that other stuff, but the moment you start speaking out against this so called fourth branch, deep government, they come after you like there's no tomorrow. And nobody knows that better than a target who is used for target practice in order to recruit and train their network of organized criminals, state corporate and academia sponsored, sanctioned, and covered up. So Alfred McCoy, who, um, and this is Tom Dispatch, because I like, I like um, Tom Dispatch, but it has to do with, um, and this guy's pretty good. Alfred McCoy published some books uh, let me give you some of the insights of his book, In the Shadow of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power by Alfred W. McCoy, uh, Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade, uh, The CIA Secret Research on Torture, 
Um, psychologists help Washington crack the code of human consciousness. Um, the one that I liked was, well, I didn't like, but it was a good book. It was called The Question of Torture, CIA Interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror. And that was back in 2006. When I was targeted, I, I was trying to learn what type of, of, uh, uh, of operations were being deployed and executed against every aspect of my living life. This is 2006 when they went live. And so there was one thing, and then a lot of it had to do with the weaponization of neuroscience and neurotechnologies, bio, biological, technological weapons that the military has been hardcore into. But that also ties into artificial intelligence, human brain-computer interfaces, cognitive systems, okay? And so in my, on my website, it was a question of torture, CIA interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror, Alfred W. McCoy. In the 50s, this is me writing here, though, and I'll give you the quote he said. In the 50s and 60s, there was a CIA medical officer who said the following about MK Ultra, which was the behavioral modification and mind control experiments, and other behavioral modification invasive psychological torture techniques. Thus, he retained his Hippocratic oath, first, do no harm. Though feeling that any, this is his quote now, this was from, uh, from the book. Though feeling that anything more than six days of sensory deprivation would almost certainly cause irreparable damage, Baldwin agreed to do these terminal type tests if the agency would provide both subject and cover. In the end, however, a CIA medical officer blocked the project as immoral and inhuman, suggesting that those who favored the experiments might volunteer their own hands for use in Dr. Baldwin's noble project. That's why the whole concept. They're doing it for a noble cause, the greater good, to advance science and technology. You know, that's what the Nazis used to say, too, when they experimented on people. And so these are, this, is, this guy, he, he's been monitoring it, just like other people. But when you're a victim of it, you don't know where to look first because you're blitzed. But you begin to realize that there is this conspiracy in the true sense, not a conspiracy theory like the CIA coined that term conspiracy theory to, to uh, discredit anyone who questioned the official story on the JFK assassination. So it was a negative narrative that was going to be associated with the power of suggestion, right, power of association. So then they started making them look like the tinfoil hat, alien people, you know, all that other stuff, so that it would discredit the true Title 18 term conspiracy. That's when two or more people come together are basically committing a crime. That's what was shown with the people at the highest levels of the American Psychological Association. They conspired with the Department of Defense and other government agencies to lower what they claimed was the, the, the narrative of what torture was how much you could put someone through and then still not call it torture, even though there are people within the American Psychological Association that retained their Hippocratic oath saying, this is bullshit. What you guys are doing is torture. What you're doing is trying to lower the standards so that you could meet the criteria that the United States Department of Defense, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the executive branch of the government want, which was to torture people mercilessly, and then call it not torture. And get the American people to buy in 
to that bullshit, the whitewash and sanitizing of it. Instead of calling it, you know, uh, brutal, brutal, brutal torture, they, ter- they coined the phrase enhanced interrogation. It's rebranding something. But it's being done not necessarily by the officials that you see, but the ones below them that are unelected. So let me, um, there's uh, Alfred McCoy and Tom Dispatch, and you should read Tom Dispatch because he's great. And this is, there is now a fourth branch of the federal government, and none of its officials are elected. By Alfred McCoy through Tom Dispatch, August 24, 2017. In the wake of the 2001 terrorist attacks, Washington pursued its elusive enemies across the landscape of Asia and Africa, thanks in part to a massive expansion of its intelligence infrastructure, particularly of the emerging technologies from digital surveillance, agile drones, and biometric identification. In 2010, almost a decade into this secret war with its voracious appetite for information, the Washington Post reported, and it was called a Top Secret America, and I suggest anyone go back to those articles. They're, They're excellent. They broke it down but they only were doing it based on the information that they had. What the Snowden leaks did was prove that everything they said was absolutely true. So through the classified documents, it was like speculation or it was the information that they had garnered through the Washington Post Top Secret America. But all of us knew about it, especially targets. And we exposed it. But it wasn't until the Snowden leaks that really exposed the true nature of this surveillance state. The op- what I call the open-air prison or stolen capitalism. Yeah, you can do whatever you want to a point, and if you go across that point or you speak out, then they come at you like stolen. So it was uh, for information, the Washington Post reported, Top Secret America, that the national security state had swelled into a fourth branch of the federal government, with 854,000 vested officials, 263 security organizations, and over 3,000 intelligence units, issuing 50,000 special reports every year. Though stunning, these statistics only skim the visible surface of what had become history's largest and most, most lethal clandestine apparatus. According to classified documents that Edward Snowden leaked in 2013, The nation's 16 intelligence agencies alone had 107,000 employees and a combined block budget of $52.6 billion a year. The equivalent equivalent five of 10% of the vast defense budget. By sweeping the skies and probing the World Wide Web under city cables, the National Security Agency could surgically penetrate the confidential communications of just about any leader on the planet while simultaneously sweeping up billions of ordinary messages. For its classified mission, the CIA had access to the Pentagon's Special Operations Command with 69,000 elite troops, Rangers, SEALs, Air Commandos, and their agile arsenal. In addition to this formidable paramilitary capacity, the CIA operated 30 Predator and Reaper drones responsible for more than 3,000 deaths in Pakistan and Yemen. While Americans 
practice a collective form of duck and cover of the Department of Homeland Security colored alert Pulse nervously from yellow to red, few paused to ask the hard question. Was all this security really directed solely at enemies beyond our borders after half a century of domestic security abuses from the Red Scare of the 1920s through the FBI's illegal harassment of anti-war protesters in the 1960s and 70s? Could we really be confident that there wasn't a hidden cost to all those secret measures right here at home. Maybe, just maybe, all the security wasn't really so benign when it came to us. From my personal experience over the past half a century and my family's history over three generations, I found out in the most personal way possible that there's a real cost to entrusting our civil liberties to the discretion of secret agencies. Let me share just a few of my own war stories to explain how I have forced, how I've been forced to keep learning and relearning this uncomfortable lesson the hard way. On the heroin trail. After finishing college in the late 1960s, I decided to pursue a PhD in Japanese history and was pleasantly surprised when Yale Graduate School admitted me with a full fellowship. But the Ivy League in those days was no ivory tower. During my first year at Yale, the Justice Department indicted Black Panther leader Bobby Seale for a local murder and the May Day protest that filled the New Haven Green also shut the campus for a week. Almost simultaneously, President Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia and students' protests closed hundreds of campuses across America for the rest of the semester. In the midst of all this turmoil, the focus of my studies shifted from Japanese to Southeast Asia and from the, and from the past to the, to the war in Vietnam. Yes, that war. So what I did do about the draft. So what did I do about the draft? During my first semester at Yale on December 1, 1969, to be precise, the Selective Services cut up the calendars for a lottery. The first 100 birthdays picked were certain to be drafted by any date above 200 were likely exempt. My birthday, June 8th, was the very last date drawn, not number 365, but 366. Don't forget, leap year. The only lottery I have ever won, except for a sunbeam, except for a sunbeam electric frying pan in a high school raffle. Through a convoluted moral calculus typical of the 1960s, I decided that my draft exemption, exemption although acquired by sheer luck, demanded that I devote myself above all else to thinking about, writing about, and working to end the Vietnam War. During those campus protests over Cambodia in the spring of 1970, our small group of graduate students in Southeast Asian history at Yale realized that the United States strategic predicament in Indochina would soon require an invasion of, an invasion of Laos to cut the flow of enemy supplies into South Vietnam. So while protests over Cambodia swept campuses nationwide, we were huddled inside the library preparing for the next invasion by editing a book of essays on Laos and for the publisher Harper and Rowe. A few months after that book appeared, one of the company junior editors, Elizabeth Jacob, 
intrigued by an account we had included about the country's opium crop telephone from New York to ask if I could research and write a quickie paperback about the history behind the heroin epidemic then infecting the United States Army in Vietnam. I promptly started the research at my student corral in the Gothic Towers that is Yale's Sterling Library, tracking old colonial reports about Southeast Asia's opium trade that ended suddenly in the 1950s, just as the story got interesting. So, quite tentatively at first, I stepped outside the library to do a few interviews and soon found myself following an investigative trail that circled the globe. First, I traveled across America for meetings what with retired CIA operatives. Then I crossed the Pacific to Hong Kong to study drug syndicates courtesy of that colony's police drug squad. Next, I went south to Saigon, then the capital of South Vietnam, to investigate the heroin traffic that was targeting the GIs and on into the mountains of Laos to observe CIA alliances with opium warlords and the Hill Tribe Militia that grew the opium poppy. Finally, I flew from Singapore to Paris for interviews that retired French intelligence officers about their opium trafficking during the first Indochina War of the 1950s. The drug traffic that supplied heroin for the United States troops fighting in South Vietnam was not, I discovered, exclusively the work of criminals. Once the opium left tribal poppy fields in Laos, the traffic required official complicity at every level. The helicopter of Air America, the airline the CIA then ran, ran, carried raw opium out of the village of its hill tribe allies. The commander of the Royal Lao Army, a close American collaborator, operated the world's largest heroin lab and was so oblivious to the implications of the traffic that he opened his opium ledgers for my inspectors inspection. Several of Saigon's top generals were complicit in the drug distribution to United States soldiers. By 1971, this web of collusion ensured that heroin, according to a later White House survey of thousands of a, uh, of a thousand veterans, would be commonly used by 34% of American troops in South Vietnam. None of this had been covered in my college history seminars. I had no model for researching an uncharted netherland of crime and covert operations. After stepping off the plane in Saigon, body swam by the tropical heat, I found myself in a sprawling foreign city of four million lost in the swarm of snarling motorcycles and a maze of nameless streets without contact or a clue about how to probe these secrets. Every day on the heroin trail confronted me with new challenges. Where, where to look, what to look for, and above all, how to ask hard questions. That's a key thing about asking questions. Reading all that history had, however, taught me something I didn't know I knew. Instead of confronting my sources with questions about sensitive current items, I started with the French colonial past when the opium trade was still legal, gradually uncovering the underlying unchanging logistics of drug production. As I followed this historical, historical trail into the present when the traffic became illegal and dangerously controversial, I began to use pieces from this path to assemble 
the present puzzle until the names of contemporary dealers fell into place. In short, I had crafted a historical method that would prove over the next 40 years of my career surprisingly useful in analyzing a diverse array of foreign policy controversies. CIA alliances with drug lords, the agency's prop- propagation of psychological torture, and our spending and our spreading snake surveillance. So this is his history. He's explaining how you learn. You learn through, either, well, in his case, talking. In my case, as a victim of their crimes, studying what they're doing to me and putting the puzzle pieces together. Because when they blitz you, it's like throwing you off of a 100-story building, and when you hit the ground, they shatter you and everything about you into a million little pieces, and you have to pick up those pieces as a victim of targeting. But as you're picking up those pieces, you're learning about the tactical operations that are being deployed and executed against you. And instead of being silent, you have to expose it. So the CIA makes its entrance into my life. Those months on the road meeting gangsters and warlords in isolated places offered only one bit of real danger. While hiking in the mountains of Laos, interviewing Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, farmers about their opium shipments, one CIA helicopter on uh, opium shipments on CIA helicopters, I was descending a steep slope when a burst of bullets ripped the ground at my feet. I had walked into an ambush by agency mercenaries. While the five Hmong militia escorts whom the local village headman had prudently provided laid down a covering fire, my Australian photographer John Ever- Everingham and I flattened ourselves in the elephant grass and crawled through the mud to safety. Without, without those armed escorts, my research would have been at an end, and, uh, and so would I. After that ambush failed, a CIA paramilitary officer summoned me to a mountaintop meeting where he threatened to murder my Lao interpreter unless I ended my research. After winning assurance, from the U.S. Embassy that my interpreter would not be harmed, I decided to ignore that warning and kept going. Six months and 30,000 miles later, I returned to New Haven. My investigation of CIA alliance with drug lords had taught me more than I could have imagined about the covert aspect of United States global power. Settling into my attic apartment for an academic year of writing, I was confident that I knew more than enough for a book on this unconventional topic. But my education, it turned out, was just beginning. Within weeks, a massive middle-aged guy in a suit interrupted my scholarly isolation. He appeared at my front door and identified himself as Tom Tripodi, senior agent for the Bureau of Narcotics, which later became the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. His agency, he confessed, during the second visit was worried about my writing, and he had been sent to investigate. He needed something to tell his superiors. Tom was a guy you could trust, so I showed him a few draft papers of my book. He disappeared into the living room for a while and came back saying, pretty good stuff. You got your ducks in a row. But there were some things, he added, that weren't quite right, some things 
he could help me fix. Tom was my first reader. Later, I would hand him whole chapters, and he would sit in a rocking chair, shirt sleeves rolled up, revolver in his shoulder holster, sipping coffee, scribbling corrections in the margins, and telling fabulous stories. Like the time Thursday Mafia boss, Bayoni, Joe, Zicarelli tried to buy a thousand rifles from a local gun store to overthrow Fidel Castro. Or when CIA covert warriors came home from a vaca- for a vacation and had to be escorted everywhere so he didn't kill somebody in the supermarket aisles. Best of all, there was the one about the Bureau of Narcotics caught Bureau of Narcotics, how the Bureau of Narcotics caught French intelligence protecting a cor- corrosion syndicates smuggling heroin into New York. Some of his stories, usually unacknowledged, would appear in my book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. These conversations with an undercover operative who had trained Cuban exiles for the CIA in Florida and later investigated mafia heroin syndicates for the DEA in Sicily. We were akin to an advanced seminar, a master class of covert operations. In the summer of 1972, the book with the book at press, I went to Washington to testify before Congress. As I was making the rounds of congressional offices on Capitol Hill, my editor rang unexpectedly and summoned me to New York for a meeting with the president and vice president of Harper and Rowe, my book's publisher, my book's publisher, ushered into a plush suite of offices overlooking the spire of St. Patrick's Cathedral. I listened to those executives tell me that Cord Meyer Jr., the CIA Deputy Director for Covert Operations had called on their company's President Emeritus, Cass Canfield, Sr. The visit was no accident, for Canfield, according to an authoritative history, enjoyed, enjoyed prolific links to the world of intelligence, both as a former psychological warfare officer and as a close personal friend of Ellen Dulles, the ex-head of the CIA. Meyer denounced my book as a threat to national security. He asked Canfield, also an old friend, to quietly suppress it. I was in serious trouble. Not only was Meyer a senior CIA official, but he also had impeccable social connections and covert assets in every corner of American intelligence life. After graduating from Yale in 1942, he served with the Marines in the Pacific, writing Eloquent War Dispatch published in the Atlantic Monthly. He later worked with the United States delegation drafting the UN Charter, personally recruited by spymaster Ellen Dulles. Myers joined the CIA in 1951 and was soon running the International Organization Division, which, in the words of the same history, constituted the greatest single concentration of covert political and propaganda activities, one of the by-now octopus-like CIA, including Operation Mockingbird. That planted disinformation in major United States newspapers meant to aid agency operations. Informed sources told me that the CIA still had assets in every major New York publisher, and it already had every page of my manuscript. This was back in the 70s, remember? So just think what they can do when the digital world helped them gain everything they needed. As a child of a wealthy New York family, Cord Meyer moved in elite circles, meeting and marrying Mary Pinoche, Pinoche, 
the niece of Gifford Pinoche, founder of the United States Forestry Service and a former governor of Pennsylvania. Pinoche was a breathtakingly beautiful, uh, breathtaking beauty who later became President Kennedy's mistress, making dozens of secret visits to the White House. When she was found shot dead along the banks of a canal in Washington in 1964, the head of the CIA counterintelligence, James Asus Engleton, another Yale alumnus, broke into her home in an unsuccessful attempt to secure her diary. Mary's sister Tony and her husband, Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, Bradley, later found a diary and gave it to Engleton for destruction by the agency. To this day, her unsolved murder remains a subject of mystery and controversy. Cord Meyer was also the second social register in the in the social register of New York's fine families among, along with my publisher, Cass Canfield, which added a dash of social cash to the pressure to suppress my book. By the time he walked into Harper and Rowe's office in that summer, 1972, two decades of CIA service had changed. Meyer, according to the same authoritative history from the liberal idealist into a relentless, implacable advocate for his own ideas. Driven by a paranoid distrust of everyone who didn't agree with him and a manner that was histrionic and even bellicose. An an unpublished 26-year-old graduate student versus a master of CIA media manipulation. It was hardly a fair fight. I began to fear my book would never appear. To his credit, Canfield refused Meyer's request to suppress the book but he did allow the agency a chance to review the manuscript prior to publication. Instead of waiting quietly for the CIA's critique, I I contacted Seymour Hersh, then an investigative reporter for the New York Times. The same day the CIA courier arrived from Langley to collect my manuscript, Hersh swept through Harper and Rose's office like a tropical storm, pelting hapless executives with incessant unsettling questions. The next day, his expose of the CIA's attempt at censorship appeared on the paper's front page. Other national media organizations followed his lead. Faced with a barrage of negative coverage, the CIA gave Harper Rowe a critique full of unconvincing denials. The book was published unaltered. My life is an open book for the agency. I have learned another important lesson. The Constitution's protection of press freedom could check even the world's most powerful espionage agency. Cord Meyer reportedly learned the same lesson. According to his obituary in the Washington Post, it was assumed that Mr. Meyer would eventually advance to head CIA covert operations. But the public disclosure about the book deal apparently dampened his prospects. He was instead exiled to London and eased into early retirement. Meyer and his colleagues were not, however, used to losing. In the public arena, the CIA retreated to the shadows and retaliated by tugging at every thread in the thread bar life of a graduate student. So you understand? Somehow you get on their radar, and these motherfuckers don't like, oh, this is in the 70s. Just think what you can do with weaponized technologies. And you're doing it for target practice on people who don't have any knowledge at that time. Most targets weren't into all of this stuff. Yeah, it was anti-war. An anti-patriot act because it was unco- there were there were parts in it that were unconstitutional, 
like warrantless wiretapping, going through all your records and building profiles so they can fuck you up. So everything he's saying is things that targets go through, especially the ones that do research and know who the fuck is targeting them. Not personally, but what agencies are helping to facilitate it. So my life as an open book for the agency, I had learned another important lesson. And this is Alfred McCoy. He's talking about his own self, just trying to be a reporter. I learned another important lesson. The Constitution's protections of press freedom could check even the world's most powerful espionage agency. Cord Meyer reportedly learned the same lesson. Okay, Myers and his colleagues were not, however, used to losing. Defeated in the public arena, the CIA retreated to the shadows and retaliated by tugging at every thread in the threadbare life of a graduate student. Over the next few months, federal officials from the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare turned up at Yale to investigate my graduate fellowship. The Internal Revenue Service audited my poverty-level income. I've been audited, too. That was the first thing. First thing they did was hit me financially, and then I was audited. So all those, you know, Republicans, when Obama came into office, oh, we've been audited. Let me tell you something, motherfucker. They were going after the liberals when Bush was in office, so shut the fuck up. Um. So the Internal Revenue Service audited my poverty-level income. The FBI tapped my New Haven telephone, something I learned years later from a class action lawsuit. In August 1972, at the height of the controversy over the book, FBI agents told the Bureau's director that they had conducted an investigation concerning McCoy, searching the files they had compiled on me for the past two years and interviewing numerous sources whose identities are concealed who have furnished reliable information in the past, thereby producing an 11-page report detailing my birth, education, and campus anti-war activities. A college classmate I had had not seen in four years who served in military intelligence magically appeared at my site in the book section of the Yale Co-op seemingly eager to resume our relationship. The same week that a laudatory review of my book appeared on the front page of the New York Times book review, an extraordinary achievement for any historian. Yale's history department placed me on academic probation. Unless I could somehow do a year's worth of overdue work in a single semester, I faced dismissal. In those days, the ties between the CIA and Yale were wide and deep. The campus residential college screened students, including future CIA director Porter for possible careers in espionage. Alumni like Cord Myers and James Engleton held senior slots at the agency. Had I not had a faculty advisor visiting from Germany, the distinguished scholar Bernhard Dom, who was a stranger to this covert nexus, that probation would likely have been expulsion, ending my academic career and destroying my credibility. During those difficult days, New York Congressman Ogden Reed, a ranking member of the House Foreign Relations Committee, telephoned to say that he was sending staff investigators to Laos to look into the opium situation. Amid this controversy, a CIA helicopter landed near the village where I had escaped that ambush and flew the Hmong headmen who had helped my research to an agency airstrip. There, a CIA interrogator made it clear 
that he had better deny what he had said to me about the opium, fearing as he later told my photographer that he will send a helicopter to arrest me or soldiers to shoot me, the Hmong headmen did just that. At a personal level, I was discovering just how deep the country's intelligence agencies could reach, even in a democracy, leaving no part of my life untouched, my publisher, my university, my sources, my taxes, my phone, and even my friends. Although I had won the first battle of this war with a media blitz, the CIA was winning the longer bureaucratic struggle. By silencing my sources and denying any culpability, its officials convinced Congress that it was innocent of any direct complicity in the Indochina drug trade. During Senate hearings into CIA assassinations by the same church committee three years later, Congress accepted the agency's assurance that none of its operatives had been directly involved in heroin trafficking, an allegation I had never actually made. The committee's report did confirm the core of my critique, however, finding that the CIA in partic is particularly vulnerable to criticism over indigenous assets in Laos of considerable importance to the agency, including the people who either were known to be or were suspected of being involved in narcotics trafficking. But the senators did not press the CIA for any resolution or reform of what its own inspector general had called the particular dilemma posed by those alliances with drug lords. The key aspect, in my view, of its complicity in the traffic. During the mid-70s, as the flow of drugs, the United States showed, slowed, and the number of addicts declined, the heroin problem needed, receded into the inner cities, and the media moved on to new sensations. Unfortunately, Congress had forfeited an opportunity to check the CIA and correct its way of waging covert wars. In less than 10 years, the problem of the CIA's tactical alliances with drug traffickers to support a far-flung covert wars, uh, support in its far-flung covert wars, was back with a vengeance. During the 1980s, as the crack cocaine epidemic swept American cities, the agency and its own inspector general, later reported, allied itself with the largest drug smugglers in the Caribbean, using his port facilities to ship arms to the Contra guerrillas fighting the Nicaragua, Nicaraguan and protecting him from any prosecutions for five years. Simultaneously... Simultaneously, on the other side of the planet in Afghanistan, Mujahideen guerrillas imposed an opium tax on farmers to fund their fights against the Soviet occupation and with the CIA's tacit consent, ordered heroin labs among the Pakistani borders to supply international markets. By the mid-1980s, Afghanistan's opium harvest had grown tenfold and was providing 60% of the heroin for America's addicts and as much as 90% in New York City. Almost by accident, I had launched my academic career by doing something a bit different. Embedded within the study of drug trafficking was an analytical approach that would take me almost unwittingly on a lifelong exploration 
of the United States global hegemony in its many manifestations, including diplomatic alliances, CIA interventions, developing military technology, recourse to torture, and global surveillance. Step by step, topic, topic by topic, decade after decade, I would slowly accumulate sufficient understanding of the parts to try to assemble the whole. In writing my new book, In the Shadow of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, I drew on this research to assess the overall character of United States global power and the forces that might contribute to its perpetration or decline, of decline, or decline. In the process, I slowly came to see a striking continuity and coherence in Washington's century-long rise to global dominion. CIA torture techniques emerged at the start of the Cold War in the 1950s. Much of its futuristic robotic aerospace technology had its first trial in the Vietnam War in the 1960s, and above all, Washington's reliance on surveillance first appeared in the colonial Philippines around 1900 and soon became an essential, an essential, though essentially illegal tool for the FBI's repression of domestic dissent and continued through the 1970s. <clears throat> Surveillance today. In the wake of the 9-11 terror attacks, I dusted off that, that historical method and used it to explore the origins and characters of domestic surveillance inside the United States. After occupying the Philippines in 1898, the U.S. Army facing a difficult pacification campaign in, the rest, in, a, in a restative land discovered the power of systematic surveillance to crush the resistance of the country's political elite. Then, during World War I, the Army's father of military intelligence and dower, General Ralph Van Deman, who had learned his trade in the Philippines, drew upon the, his year-long pacifying those islands to mobilize a legion of 1,700 soldiers and 350,000 citizen vigilantes. Okay? So you only had 1,700 soldiers, but what you got out of it was 350,000 citizen vigilantes. Okay, it's the same premise as targeting. In order to have that plausible deniability, you radical community members that are willing to commit indiscriminate acts for them, uh, indiscriminate acts of violence for these people, vandalism, theft, robbery, breaking and entering, destruction of private property, firing weapons so that they could calibrate them for crowd control, anti-personnel, directed energy. So remember, 1,700 soldiers but you had 350,000 radicalized extremist civilian sleeper cells that you could count on, and you could activate them whenever someone was targeted or who got on the list came into your neighborhood. It's the same tactical operation. They just rebrand it. So, immobile, uh, so pacifying those islands to mobilize a legion of 1,700 soldiers and 350,000 citizen vigilantes for an intense surveillance program against suspected enemy spies among German Americans, including my own grandfather. In studying military intelligence files at the National Archives, I found suspicious, quote-unquote, letters 
purloined from my grandfather's army locker. In fact, his mother had been writing him in her native German about such subjective subjects as knitting him socks for grand duty, uh, for guard duty. So remember, the same tactical operations, okay? 1,700 soldiers, but you have 350,000 radicalized extremists who become your citizen vigilantes or sleeper cells. And they can be activated whenever someone who's targeted goes on the list because they're dedicated to the cause. In the 1950s, Hoover's FBI agents tapped thousands of phones without warrants and kept suspected uh, subversives under close surveillance, including my mother's cousin, Gerard Piel, an anti-nuclear activist and the publisher of Scientific American Magazine. During the Vietnam War, the Bureau expanded its activities with an amazing array of spiteful, often illegal intrigues in a bid to cripple the anti-war movement with pervasive surveillance of the sort of the sort seen of the sort seen in my own FBI files. Memory of FBI surveillance. Memory of the of the FBI's illegal surveillance programs was largely washed away after the Vietnam War thanks to congressional reform that required judicial warrants for all government wiretaps. The terror attack of September 2001, however, gave the National Security Agency the leeway to launch renewed surveillance on a previously unimaginable scale. Writing for Tom Dispatch in 2009, I observed the coercive methods first tested in the Middle East were being repatriated and might lay the groundwork for a domestic surveillance state. Sophisticated biometric and cyber techniques forged in the war zones of Afghanistan and Iraq had made a digital surveillance state a reality, and so were fundamentally changing the character of American democracy. Four years later, Edward Snowden's leak of secret NSA documents revealed that after a century-long gestation period, a United States digital surveillance state had finally arrived. In the age of the Internet, the NSA could monitor tens of millions of private lives worldwide, including American ones, via a few hundred computerized probes into the global grid of fiber optic cables. And then, as if to remind me in the most personal way possible of our new reality four years ago, I find myself, I found myself the target yet again of an IRS audit of TSA body searches at national airports. And as I discovered, when the line went dead, a tap on my office telephone at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Why? Question mark. Maybe it was my current writing on sensitive topics like CIA torture and national security agency surveillance, or maybe my name popped up from some old database of suspected subversives left over from the 1970s. Whatever the explanation, it was a reasonable reminder that if my own family's experience across three generations 
is in any way representative, state surveillance has been an integral part of American political life far longer than we might have imagined. At the cost of personal privacy, Washington's World Wide Web of Surveillance has now become a weapon of exceptional power in the bid to extend United States global hegemony deeper into the 21st century. Yet it is worth remembering that sooner or later, what we do overseas always seems to come home to haunt us. Just as the CIA and crew have haunted me this last half century, when we learn to love Big Brother, the world becomes a more, not less, dangerous place. So it says Alfred McCoy is the Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then he gave you the book, some of his books. And Tom Dispatch is good, too. You should go to Tom Dispatch's website. I've read many of articles for my show. So this is about how it's not so much that it's new. It's that it's on steroids and speed and crack. And that with the advances of, you know, uh, computational computerized systems and algorithms that are milli, milliseconds, you know, they can pop up data in not a, a second, you know, milliseconds. Whether it's facial recognition, license plate recognition, name recognition, vocal recognition, the computational speed of these computerized systems. But the one thing they hadn't broken yet, but they are now, and I think it's fully operational, is the speed. Remember, I always say that our human brain is the most technologically advanced computerized system in all of history. We are a computerized system. The brain fires at how many quadrillion bits per second, right? Now, the only thing they didn't have in behavioral modification, not just using, you know, psychological operations, or they call it military information uh, support, MISO operation. So they rebranded, and I have a document that shows the year that they rebranded the name psychological operation or PSYOPs to military information um, operations, uh, military, um, military information support operations. So MISO, M-I-S-O. Um, but they rebranded because people don't like the term psychological operations. So when you rebrand it, you make it sound much more, much less, you know, harmful. But these are the things that transpire. And most of the targets who did document and who did it the right way have basically exposed the tactical operations. But, you know, like he's saying, remember, that was back in the 1800s that they had only 1,700 soldiers, but they had radicalized into extremism 350,000 civilian vigilantes. They get them to do the dirty work so that they have plausible deniability. Just like Michael Hastings, he told everyone, he was like, he was terrified because they're fucking with him. That L.A. group knows how to fuck with people. When they blitz you, they blitz you. And you could be someone who was embedded with Stanley McChrystal and in the war zone reporting. But when they blindside you, they use everything they have, including weaponized technologies and weaponized biological technological means. And they blitz you. So he told everyone that he was going, he was, uh, going under the radar because he believed he was under heavy surveillance. But then when, the, when you... When the FBI was asked, they said, no, 
possible deniability, right? You just activate your 350, in that case, in the early, uh, the 1800s or 1900s, it was 350,000. 1,700 PSYOP soldiers, basically, fucking around the United States of America, radicalizing citizens into extremism that become sleeper cells that can be activated to do their bidding for them. So Michael, uh, Michael Hastings, he was that, um, you know, he did the runaway general, the Rolling Stones, and another runaway general. He exposed PSYOPs. He gets a job with BuzzFeed, and next thing you know, four months later, he's dead. His car was speeding down the streets that you don't speed down, especially if you're a new person in L.A. I'm telling you, you don't drive that way. You just don't drive that way. Not when you're new to the city, because you don't know where the cars are, because there's so much traffic. It doesn't matter what time it is. You just don't speed until, well, now once you get to know the city, then maybe. But four months into a brand new city, you don't drive like that, especially if you're going southbound in the direction he was going, and he was on uh, Highland Avenue. You definitely don't go that fast. Going southbound. It's too dangerous. Now, a car that has been manipulated through the electrical system and hacked into, that someone is taking command and control over after terrifying a man, helicopters, he said, and all this other stuff. And I will always regret, and I will continue to say this, that I had a 35-page document that broke down the things to look for in targeting. And I was at a um, Greenwald, what was it? Not uh, It's Greenwald. He does those documentary films, and they were doing the war on whistleblower, and they had a premiere in Beverly Hills. And I didn't go out much in L.A., but I got dressed and went out to that one because I, it, for the reason to give the information to, if I could. But I didn't know that uh, Hastings was going to be the, the panel speaker after the film or the documentary. And as I'm driving out of Beverly Hills, I remembered, oh, shit, I forgot to give this to him. I should go back and give it to him. And I didn't. But maybe if he was getting targeted and he understood that these are psychological operations utilized to deliberately make you paranoid, and even in the Snowden leaks, they said they can take paranoia to a whole other level. Maybe he would have been able to recognize it so he wasn't so scared. But he ended up dead instead. He was not riding his car, and, and, it, and at those breakneck speeds, some, somebody took control of the car, and they smashed it into that tree, and that man burned alive. They murdered him, and I will never change that, that belief. And that's how they come after you. But McCoy's talking about his years just trying to, you know, he was just doing something and then it got into the, the crosshairs of people who, try, who are corrupt at the highest levels. And he's been exposing it over the years, but they come after you. And then when you need the new generation, the next generation of operative spies and like I said, from 1,700 soldiers to 350,000 civilians that you have to radicalize into extremism, you turn American soil into your, your, your um, battleground, your laboratory to manipulate people. And it's worked. You discredit people who know the truth. You come after them and you get people to believe in the negative false light narratives that they sell. It's not like this is new. 
and no target and most targets realize that they know it's Cointel Pro on steroids. They know that it's another branch of uh, <coughs> of non-consensual human experimentation at the highest levels because it's for a noble cause. Remember, it's for the greater good. It's to advance science and technology. And all these people that are involved at the highest level who have abused their positions of power, authority, and or expertise, getting the average American to believe their fucking lies and doing grave harm to those innocent individuals who speak out against it. It never changes. Because the people who actively participate from the civilian population don't utilize critical thinking skills and basic common sense. Why would you do that to someone? I wouldn't want them to do it to me. Because this person in a position, this person abused their position of power, authority, and their expertise, and they told you it was okay, when you know that it's not okay. It's a real simple premise. It doesn't take rocket science. And it never fucking changes. Because people don't understand history. And now that you have the internet, they're rebranding history to whatever they want it to be. They don't go for, like when I see something, but I'll look at other sources. Is this being said here, here, and here? Where's the paper? Where's the government paper? Where's the... Where's the, the um, the backup to that? Did you source the material? No, this person that I trust told me this, so therefore it must be true. That's all it takes now. You know what the scariest part is? Is that you got, you got people in the, in, in the Middle East, in Africa, in other areas, okay? They live in villages. They don't have the type of things that we have access to. Yet they, are, they can recognize psychological operation bullshit. And the only place that psych, psyops or meso-military information, uh, what did I say, MI, military information uh, specialist or whatever, support operations. So military information support operations also known as, or FKA, which is formally known as psychological operations, okay? The only people who buy in to PSYOPs are the people in the civilizations that have the most information that they can, at their fingertips to tell them that what is being done to them is pure and concentrated bullshit, yeah, you have people who don't have that type of capability to be able to gather different forms of information to make a critical thinking analysis. All of it at their fingertips. And they don't utilize it. Yet the third world people who don't even have running fucking water and a psi operator comes in there, they could recognize it in a single motherfucking heartbeat. That's why we have all these conflicts that the United States creates all over the globe and back in Latin America or South America.
and the, 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 the people in the Western civilizations buy into all their fucking bullshit. It's amazing. It defies fucking logic. How could you have all this stuff at your capability, the most technologically advanced nation, one of the most technologically advanced nations in the whole planet, with information that you can glean from anywhere and gather that information to make a, and do critical analysis and thinking, and yet you will follow the leader without thinking. So PSYOPs works but only in Western civilized nations because that's where the predominance of groupthink, cult behavior is at its peak. What is wrong with that picture? What is wrong with people who have that accessibility to be able to critically analyze information, be so duped into psychological warfare, and jump on board and actively participate. It defies fucking logic. But you have people in these third world countries and they can spot these motherfuckers in a heartbeat. Oh, they just fucking with their heads. What is wrong with that picture? Go along to get along? Bullshit. And they talk about the animals, but the people are just trying to survive in their third world countries without running water. And the people here with all the information think they know everything. And they can't even figure out that they're the biggest dupes of all because they go along with the program. And that's what the problem is. They don't do critical thinking. They just say, hey, go to this website because you trust that person, so therefore whatever that they say is it. No critical thinking. Yet they have the information that they could go to different sources. But they're, they're locked into groupthink. Follow the leader. And then they have the unmitigated goal to call names to the people who are trying to expose it. And they go along with their oblivion and their ignorance and their bigotry because they've been radicalized to feel that way or to think that way. But don't call a target a name until you've looked in the mirror at your own reflection and cleaned out your own backyard. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.